0: Today I welcome Chris Wheeler, Headmaster at Monkton Coombe School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss authentic leadership, the role of the head as Chief Marketing Officer, faith and spirituality in schools, and why children should be encouraged to question everything. I want to talk to you about Monkton, about your leadership, about your vision, about what you believe in. At Moncton, you talk a lot about a different approach Moncton thinking differently. Is this just marketing speak or is this real? Tell me about that and what it means.
1: Look, I mean, the, the origin of it, when I first arrived, it was probably the thing that I heard most often was sort of, well, we don't really do it like everybody else in that sense. We, we do things a bit this way instead. And that seemed to be the most common thing. One of the first pupils I met was a, a sixth form girl. And I sort of said, you know, tell me about your Moncton journey. I was still on interview at this stage. And she said, well, I, you know, I went to what I suppose I'd best describe as a couple of pushy London day schools. And then I came here for the sixth form. I said, wow, you know, moved to a sort of smallish Christian boarding school in the Southwest. It's quite a big move. You know, how did you find that? And she said, to be honest, sir, it was a bit like breathing for the first time. And I've never forgotten. I've never forgotten that. It was the most extraordinary thing to say. But I think it fed this idea that, there is something that is very different about Moncton. Now, I think lots of heads would say that about their schools. And I think that's what's so wonderful about the independent sector. For Moncton, all of that is based on, there's a, a sort of false dichotomy, I think, between people talk about, are you a pastoral school or are you an academic school? It feels like the weirdest of sort of false dichotomies, too, because the reality is, I think all educators would recognise you can't be one without the other. And so in lots of ways, what we really mean is, what do you start with? And I think Moncton starts with the person and their ability to understand themselves and reflect on who they are. And then all learning, whatever form of learning it is, flows from that.
0: And how do you deliver that within, within a school and then be able to show that to the outside world? Because I think a lot of schools talk about doing things differently. You know, you're all unique. And as you know, and I, I fundamentally believe that every school is unique. And, you know, it has to manifest itself in the stories you tell and the way that you do things. How do you get buy-in and how do you get to tell your story?
1: In part, I think the joy is that it was the Monkton story before I arrived. You know, it's not something that's particularly associated to me. It's intrinsic to the school. That is the school's DNA, that sort of thinking about things in a different way as a part of who the school is. There are a range of things that we do uh, to support that. So we run an innovation fund, which staff can apply for. In fact, children could too, in order to try and pilot things that are new. So from the, the large to the small, I guess, On the larger end, we had a couple of teachers a couple of years ago who wrote their own early years curriculum based sort of heavily on kind of the need for children to personally experience whatever it was that they were studying. We've got a a member of staff at the moment who's piloting. Here we are both, Simon, you and I at our stand-up desks, who's piloting uh, stand-up desks in classrooms rather than not. And he's looking at the impact of that and the impact for different individuals in different contexts and different circumstances. Running down, I suppose, to the really little, uh, we had a, a science teacher a couple of years ago who ran a sort of Innovation looking at how you could do chemical modeling with items that you find at home, um, which turned out to be great preparation for lockdown. But it was a sort of really interesting piece of kind of, you know, how can you make science just feel a bit, a bit sort of more real? And the premise came out of that was that sort of, you know, with what you've got at home, what might your reflections be? So, I mean, three examples, but that is definitely a part of a sort of culture of constantly looking for people to innovate and to think differently. Our appraisal system, which we call the continuous feedback cycle, is, is similarly designed to be it's entirely employee owned, and it's about uh, members of staff reflecting on where they are and what went well in something and what didn't go so well. Not so much for them, but in the thing they were trying to do, in order to then be constantly asking ourselves that question. Now, why is it important? I suppose. The key thing there is to recognise, in my view, you know, the, the kind of speed of change in the world is an exponential graph. And, you know, it feels so strong at the moment, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine how upright a line it seems to become. The pace of change is so rapid. And what I think that means for us as educators is that almost above all else, we need to be teaching children to be adaptable. If we need to be teaching children to be adaptable, we need to be ready to be adaptable ourselves. And so I guess it's about having a culture that never says, oh, no, we tried that before five years ago and it didn't work for these reasons. Because that it didn't work five years ago doesn't mean that it won't work today.
0: You talk about it not working. You're a big fan and a supporter of celebrating failure to reflect on mistakes and develop a culture of service. Celebrating failure, why? You know, doesn't this go against the real purpose of schools and education? It's all about success, surely.
1: So look, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, the first thing, you know, you'll have lots of schools that will speak to recognising the value of failure, I guess. And certainly failure is, as any of us look back through our lives, the moments where things went disastrously wrong are probably the moments where we learned the most. So from the sort of most obvious perspective, I guess it's that. Failure gives rise to huge successes and huge learning and huge all of those things. We need to be really careful because we've developed a culture in the world, I think, where people sort of feel that failure is awful and to be avoided. And, you know, we run races where we give, you know, everybody stickers so that nobody feels that, you know, they came last, but they did come last. And actually, it should be okay that they came last. I'll give you an example of a kid that came last, slight aside, but I'll give you an example. I was watching my favorite race ever. I was watching Up at the Moncton Prep School, I was watching sports day, and these four, five, six-year-olds were running along all good. And then one of them dropped to the floor, and there was a slight sort of gasp from a surrounding group of parents. (gasps) And everybody sort of ran over. And the other three carried on running. And of course, one of them came first, one of them came second, and one of them came third. I don't remember that. But what I do remember is when we got over to this kid, he stood up, picked up a little worm, and he went, Look, I found a worm. And then he carried on and he finished the race. And I was like, Do you know that's the most fantastic fourth place? I think I've ever seen. And so I guess for me, that was a sort of moment of saying, actually, we need to celebrate those moments. Did that child fail in terms of the running of a race? 100%. That was a total failure. But did he succeed in something completely else? Did he do something for everybody around him much more important than coming first in the race? Absolutely 100% he did. And so rebranding failure for me is what the celebrating of failure is all about, because in everything that is a failure, There is a huge success. We had a fantastic rower a few years ago who I remember talking about how in her first rowing race, she swam across the finish line, which is in fact, it turns out not the idea of rowing races. And she spoke about all this in chapel. And then she said, well, then I went back the following year and it was the most important race of my my life because I came in last and you could sort of hear everybody in the chapel thinking, where is this going? And she said, because I realized I could improve because the year before I swam the finish line this year, I went over it in a boat. Actually, then she pretty much then finished her kind of thing and she sat down and I had to stand up and explain that she just won a gold medal in the German European rowing championship. That was the outcome of the learning piece that goes along. But my thing is, when you're talking to kids in schools, if we talk about success all the time, 98% of the children listening to it are thinking, but I can't do that. If we talk about failure, they're all thinking, oh yeah, I've done that. And education is ultimately about us all getting onto the same page. So being able to say, this is where my life went disastrously wrong, and this is what I learned from it, is something that everyone can share. This is the moment I was given a gold medal. It's something almost no one can share. My thing about failure is the need to rebrand it and to recognize, actually, that there's a real value to the things that go wrong, and that that is the thing that we all as learners share. And that's the thing we should celebrate.
0: Yeah, agreed. I think it's a a great framework, rebranding failure. Is this something that you feel that all schools, not just independent schools, should do more of and talk more about?
1: I mean, listen, 100%, but I think they do. I mean, I don't think anything that we're doing here is, you know, is sort of unique in and of itself. I think what becomes unique is when you combine the varying things that we think are really important and the way in which we explore them. You know, you go into, I was a a trustee of one of our uh, local multi-academy trusts, and you go into it, and in all the classrooms, you've got a thing that says, you know, whatever that thing is, fail, first attempt in learning. This isn't, Sort of educational rocket science, but I do think there's something around how far you're prepared to go. Uh, And I think there's something around how much you place emphasis on those sorts of things. So I think loads of schools are talking about it. Do I think they should be talking more? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But it's also leading from the front. You know, as you say, you know, there is failure in all schools, everyone will talk about certain things, but really it is more about success. To me, it's more about leadership and leadership is about being brave and bold, being authentic, standing up front and going, actually, this is what I believe in. This is how we're going to tackle it. Because, you know, as you say, every school is kind of delivering the same thing. You just do it in a, in a way that reflects of view, the place, the culture, the people that you have around you. Your other big piece is around questioning everything. Is this how the world moves forward by questioning everything.
1: I can. I just comment on your previous point too, which is, I think that the, the one thing that you perhaps didn't include in your list of leadership qualities was vulnerability. And I think that's what also comes out of failure. It's an amazing book by a guy called Will van der who's done a lot of sort of exploration in this area. That failure piece is, is really important, I think. And, you know, I get it wrong all the time. And I think your ability to be able to, to recognize that Uh, particularly as a head, but anywhere within a school, is really vital. And that's only the same thing that as an English teacher meant that occasionally when I could perfectly well spell a word, I still took the dictionary down from the shelf and looked it up because I wanted the children to see that it's okay to look words up. Now, in that sense, when we say question everything, it only comes back to thinks differently and the whole piece feeds itself. You know, at every stage, we want to be asking the question, is this the best way that we can do things? At every stage, we want to be asking the question, what do we think? What do we believe? What do we think is important about this? Why do we think it? I think there are definitely still lots of schools that are much and this, I think, is where you get to school fit and individual learners. So I think there are definitely learners who respond really well to being questioned. And I think there are definitely learners who feel they want to be given information. And some of that depends on how your brain works. Are you fired by knowledge or are you fired by curiosity? And so that's a sort of slightly different piece. Is it the way forward for the world? hundred percent. What are we doing on Mars right now? Asking ourselves the question. My wife said to me the other day, I'm not really sure about that whole Mars thing. Like, it feels like a lot of money to be spending. And, you know, why are we doing that? I said, because it's there. Because that's the next thing, because we look for exploration as an innate part of our humanity. And so, you know, why are we doing that? Because it's there. What are we seeing there? Absolutely fascinating. How many of us, what a fantastic clickbait, all those images coming back, you know, here's a detailed image of the surface of Mars. Most of us are probably going, really? Wow, there's a fascination that goes with that. And it's the outcome of the question What do you think the surface of Mars looks like? Yeah, 100%. I think the way forward is for us to be asking questions of everything and for questions to sit at the core of who we are. The other joy about questions is that questions require collaboration. You ask me a question, I ask you a question. We are working together. You ask me a question, I give you a statement you ask me another question. Now that works okay in a podcast. But actually, you know, fundamentally, it's conversation comes from me at the end of it saying, I don't know, Simon, what do you think about questions?
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a question about questions. The thing I find with questioning everything, you know, is there a danger of mutiny if every pupil question everything you're doing? Because you know, look at education It's the teacher up front teaching you. Yes, you're taught to question certain things in a framework of the curriculum. But if we were to say, just question everything, aren't you in danger of losing control of what you teach?
1: I mean, there's a whole series of things I could unpack there. I suppose the first thing is, I- I'm not sure that control is ever what you're really looking to do in a classroom. I think what you're looking to do is sort of explode. I think you're looking to unleash rather than to control. So fundamentally, you've just answered the question for me in that I don't think anybody's trying to control things. I think we're trying to unleash what thinking is going on in the heads of everybody in our classrooms. The second thing that you said, there was a lovely moment you said, you know, the teachers in front of the class, not in my school and not, I hope, in most schools. Inevitably, sure, at the beginning of the lesson, maybe a little bit. It was a lovely, when I was working in Kenya, there was a a South African parent who said, uh, you know, Mr. Wheeler, if I go around your school, uh, what will I see in the classrooms there? And I said, well, what would you like to see? And he said, well, I hope that I'd see you know, well-behaved children sitting at their desks and listening to what the teacher has to say. And I said, well, I would be extremely disappointed if that is what you saw. What I hope you'll see, I have some uncertainty about which person is the teacher and which person is the pupil. What I hope you'll see is a classroom that is humming with activity and questioning and exploration. What I hope you'll see is what I would consider real learning. And what you've just described isn't really that at all. So one or other of us is going to be really disappointed when you come back from your tour he wasn't disappointed and he did come back and sort of say, you know, I really see what you mean. And that comes back to the piece around kind of adaptability and change. 25 years ago, that probably is what a classroom looked like, you know, and there's that lovely um, TED talk. The girl is drawing God and the chap says, you know, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl replies, well, they will in a minute. You know, it's a lovely piece, but it's about never accepting that we have learned all that we can learn, that we are at the end of any journey. I am of the view that in other regards, there are things that actually where you are seeking control, you know, behaviorally, you want control. You don't want children throwing stuff at each other or you or anybody else. But that's a slightly different piece than I think the learning piece, which I think is is all about unlocking, unleashing different conclusions, I guess.
0: I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com And my team will be in touch. Is it exhausting? Well, it must be exhausting working for you because you've got all these these ideas, um, (laughs) direction. You know, when you recruit teachers, is there a certain DNA and mold you're looking for that fit in with this ethos that is driven so hard through Moncton and obviously your own beliefs?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exhausting
0: working
1: for me. Uh, Okay. So, the first school that i that I left, in the year after I left, two or three of the staff emailed to say, "We are recovering." <laughs> <laughs> um, but towards the end of that year, they all started saying, well, we sort of miss you now. We're all a bit bored. So there's probably, you know, there's a balance to strike. I've got a good friend who works at at Wellington, and just after Anthony Seldon started, I went to visit him, and I said, you know, how is it? He said, you know, to be honest, well, absolutely exhausted. We're in a phase of innovation, and so the conversation went on. That's kind of okay. That's fine. And about three years later, I went back, and I said, you know, and how are things? And he said, well, I said, you're still pretty tired. He said, well apparently now we're in a phase of consolidation. I said, and what are the differences between that and the phase of innovation? He said, we're all trying to work that out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're all still exhausted, but inspired, hopefully. Yeah. And I suppose that's the thing is,
1: you know, in the end, therefore, what do I look for in a teacher? And I was asked that question by somebody interviewing for me this morning. You know, what I look for is somebody that is wanting to ask themselves questions all the time, that is wanting to consider the wider picture and to constantly explore that isn't wanting that kind of stereotypic. what is that phrase, you know, there's a, have you had a a 30 year teaching career or have you had 31 year teaching careers? What I'm looking for is people that are excited about being on a journey with children, because what an incredible privilege. The reason that you should never be teaching the same thing is that you never have the same children in front of you. So whilst it's always interesting to be able to look at how you taught this particular, you know, I taught King Lear last year and I'm teaching King Lear this year, and that's okay. And it's interesting to look at how you taught it last year, but actually it's not really about how you taught it, it's about how they learned it. And what one group of children take from King Lear or indeed anything else will be completely different to what another group of children take What one group of children take from dissecting a rat in front of them and what a different group of children take is going to be completely different. And that's the joy. That's people talk about teaching being less well remunerated. And remunerated, possibly fair. Rewarded, I wouldn't agree with. A huge part of the reward of the job that we're in is that it's really rewarding. We're not processing a spreadsheet in front of us. We're unlocking children and we're trying to help them understand themselves to the point where they can just kind of shine their light across the world. I mean I can't think of anything more rewarding than that.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think being a leader with such passion inspires the right teacher and the right community to join with you and it's really refreshing as an outsider looking in to see what you've managed to do at that school part of your persona online is around social media and you know a few years ago you went viral with your speech day singing was that driven because you like to perform and your your love of drama or did you have one eye on actually i think this could be a real good internet sensation it wasn't
1: either, actually. Um, I'm, as you've probably gathered from all the other things we talked about, I'm a real believer in encouraging children to be risk takers. I'm a real believer in encouraging children to believe and recognize that they can challenge the status quo. Speech days are really interesting in that neither my prep school nor my senior school did we have a formal speech day. So I'm not being half as rebellious as I look in that I don't really have a model in my mind that I'm breaking. And so I guess I come back to if what we're trying to do at those sorts of events is to celebrate the achievements of the children, how does one do that? Now, in the end, what I really wanted the children to do and what we have now got to the stage of a feeling that they can do is for them to be stepping up to the front to be breaking a little bit the mold to be telling their stories. You know, one of the more recent prize givings that the kids themselves, they were the people that were playing the interruption. They were the people that was much better. But I guess I was all of the view that if as a starter, I had said to a group of year 13s who at that stage didn't frankly really even know me very well, so listen, guys, I want you to do this thing that you're all going to look at and go, that's ridiculously embarrassing and there's no way we're going to do it. I just didn't feel we'd have had success. We did, of course, have in that, in the chorus part of the "Lay Liz thing that we did, was the choir that can't sing. So there were a bunch of pupils in that, but they were sort of led through it and into it, I guess, by the staff. I think what's striking is that it wasn't the first time I'd had the idea. I, I actually dreamed it up. I'm not going to start singing. You'll be pleased to know I realized that was an opportunity to head in.
0: <laughs> bom, <laughs> I bom, dreamed bom. it, dream- no, Yeah. I- <laughs>
1: But actually, it, it came to me as an idea when I was wanting to sort of similarly encourage the community that I work with in Kenya to, to be ready to be a little bit more risque, I suppose, to be ready to be a little bit more rule-breaking. And I sort of mooted it as an idea within my staff. And it sort of went, and I sort of thought, yeah, this isn't going to work if that's what you do. You know, the only way this works is if everybody sort of goes. And actually, by contrast, and this was one of the things I found really striking at Moncton. I wanted to make the same point at Moncton. I arrived saying, look, you know, I met this incredible girl who said that arriving here was like breathing for the first time. I want us to get better at telling our story. I believe that there are incredible things happening here, that we as a school have something to offer the national, indeed the global kind of educational world. And I want us to get better at kind of singing our song. That was the phrase that I used quite a bit. I've stopped using that phrase now. People just sort of smirk. I arrived here when we moved to that speech day I just went to two or three staff and I sort of said, you know, look, I've sort of had this idea and it's about trying to do things a little bit differently and trying to demonstrate that we're a staff. We're ready to sort of be risk takers and to live a bit differently. You know, I thought we might all break into song in the middle of one of my speeches. What do you think? And they also went, yeah, fantastic. I love it. When are we doing it? When do we? Rehe- and within that, we had, you know, the school fan sister, one of the housemasters, the academic deputy of all things, you know, the, the person in the school people might think would be dry by role and whatever else. He's an incredible singer and drama and all sorts of other things. And it's, it's that too, isn't it? It's all that stuff you don't know about people, you don't recognize about people. And suddenly, you know, so it gave rise to a bunch of other things. And we do a staff band and we do this, that, and the other. Yeah, it was about. Being ready to step up and say, look, actually, sometimes if you risk something, it's really worth it. It was about saying we don't need to be stuck in a mold. And above all else, it was about celebration. And what was really lovely at the end of that was actually the whole marquee kind of stood and were excited. And it was like, yeah, now that's what we're trying to bottle. This is a day that's about celebration. It's not a day that's sitting about, you know, sitting in a marquee with a bunch of people listening to speeches, not remembering anything that's being said to them. It's about however you achieve it, the moment that you get everybody to stand and applaud because they are standing and applauding one another. That's what you're really trying to get a school to do that day is to recognize all those incredible things. So we tried to track it, that thing, when it became apparent. I said to my external relations man, he said, what a success look like? I said, look, it'd be really nice if 10,000 people watched it. 24 hours after I said that, we were at something like 250,000 people. And he sort of said, so I think we've we've exceeded your expectations. And I was like, yeah, brilliant. Is it worth us just working out how on earth we track this now? Because I don't think you or I have any idea. Just be interesting to see. We tracked it through various kind of, I don't know, newspapers and television programs and whatever else that picked it up. We'd got to about 15 million in our count of the various different things a parent in America who was with her father in hospital who was really terminally ill. She wrote just to say, I just wanted to share that that has given me the most incredible experience because it came on national NBC news, which we didn't know. And my father saw it and it's the first time I'd seen him smile in weeks. And he just said, wow, that's the sort of school I'd love to have gone to. And she said, as a parent, I have never been prouder than to be able to say to my dying father." That's the school your grandson does go to. I guess that's what we were trying to do. It's not about whether or not we're seeing in a speech day. It's about that all the stuff that happens in these incredible schools with these incredible young people deserves a standing ovation. And anything we can do to deliver one is what we should be doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole celebration, that one piece of authentic storytelling was magic. And it, it wasn't contrived, absolutely ticked. And as you said, it bottled up your DNA that you believe in, but also that the school talks about. And I think that that was a massive part of why it was so successful. Lots of people, lots of schools have tried to replicate that since. And there's always a danger when you have that much success. How do you replicate it? And then it becomes more difficult because you're almost overthinking it. Has that been a challenge since then, the success of the speech day? Everyone's expecting something amazing this year. What are we doing? Is that an added pressure or do you go into it with, we'll come up with something cool. I mean, I
1: guess it's a little, it's a little bit of both. I, I think in the end, as I say, for me, it comes more down to working with the kids the last couple of years. That's what it's been about. It's been sitting around in the room of kids saying, this year, what are the things that you're really struck by with the current year 13s? What are the things that this year has been about for you uh, in your experience, in who you are?" You know, I guess like all good teachers at that stage, I rely on people much more creative and intelligent than myself. So I go to the children and I say, well, look, you know, how do you want to celebrate this year? And actually, I'm sort of minded at the moment. I feel the pandemic has provided an opportunity for us to really rethink again. The first prize giving that I was in, Moncton, was in a ball with a limited size. And and there were various things that were challenging about that. And so it was me that sort of said, look, you know, why don't we move it to marquee and see if there are more people that want to come. And, you know, we want to feel that we can invite everybody. I sort of feel probably we've we've also done that now. So I think we've got to think again about that first fundamental question, how do we celebrate all that's happened this year? What we've been doing recently is only a logical evolution of what we were doing before. But actually, if you're really starting from scratch and asking the question, how do we really celebrate with you and with your parents all that's happened this year? I'm not sure you'd land on we sit around in a marquee and listen to a few people make speeches. I'm not sure you would.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Your biggest tweet of the last 18 months was you wearing a tutu. Why do you think that was so popular? I'm
1: not sure. I think my most contentious tweet of the last 18 months was when I met Angela Rayner. Got some people very hot under the collar. But actually, that was really important in that what I wanted to say... It was a time when the world felt very divided. I mean, crikey, how much more divided we've become since. But it was a time when the world felt very divided. And I wanted to make it really clear that actually somebody that, you know, runs an independent school can sit down with somebody that's pretty anti-independent schools and have a really sensible conversation and agree about most things. I wouldn't want to lose sight of that because I think otherwise there's an danger that I look like I'm just a bit of a court jester why did the tutu thing? I I mean, I blame my PA largely. I was going to try something new series. And I tried to run series occasionally. And I suppose the same premise of that sort of leading from the front thing is important, but it was about engaging the children in the idea. So I wanted to do one or two things that were going to get enough traction with the kids that they would then play the game. And by the time we got to the end of that week, I had two kids, a brother and sister, who live in Latvia and are American, teaching most of the school who'd chosen to turn up at break time a Latvian folk dance. People had bought into the idea that actually having a go at something new, being vulnerable, being bad at it was worth doing. The tutu, I suppose... Probably just everybody likes to see a headmaster wearing a suit and a tutu. It's all about chiaroscuro, isn't it? I had a go at K-pop. And that, by the way, is incredibly hard. But we have a K-pop dance club and I was invited. And I think the kids enjoyed inviting me to things that they thought I wouldn't be good at. And I enjoyed being able to not be good at it for them. Because I think there is a real danger that there's an assumption as a head. You Most of the time, you're seen on form. You're seen in the place that you have defined and shaped give the speech that you've given some thought to in advance. And actually, I think it comes back to where you started in some of your questioning around the kind of failure. Actually, it's really important that the kids can see there's loads of stuff I'm bad at. You know, in the same as it's really important they can see of each other, there's loads of stuff they're bad at. The point at which we hold anybody up and say, this is the ideal person, this is the person that can do everything, is the point at which we find the greatest demotivator we possibly could. Where Actually, when you can begin to say, I can't do that, but but I can do this. That's pretty exciting. And dancing for me is my Achilles heel. That's why we went for Jerusalem at last term, because somebody had sort of challenged me to do things that I found challenging. And I absolutely, dancing brings me out of cold sweat. Didn't even dance at my wedding.
0: I want to wrap up and just cover faith, because you're a man of faith. You speak regularly at churches across the country. What place does faith have in British schools today?
1: Inevitably, I would say a vital place. And, and for me, one of the things that's so incredible about Moncton is that it absolutely demonstrates that school can be really committed to a faith, but still actually be exploring, asking those questions. You know, who doesn't ask themselves the question, where do we go when we die? why well, does a good God let bad things happen? And if we don't ask ourselves those questions and we don't ask the children to ask themselves those questions, we send children out into the world, you know, in a world that they then feel unprepared for. Because there was a wonderful pupil talk a few years ago here about building on rock versus building on sand. And this pupil was saying the thing that had really struck her about that story and really therefore fed her view that the Christian faith was the truth. She sort of said, you know, I looked at all of the world's faiths because I was sort of interested in it all, but all the others all seemed to promise that if you followed the faith, you know, that things would go well for you. Christianity seemed to promise the reverse. Jesus says pretty clearly, you know, take up your cross. It's all full of difficult imagery. But she said, you know, ultimately, you know, he doesn't promise the wave is going to hit you. question of what you choose to put your feet on on when it does. And for me, that's why faith is so important. It's why we need to encourage children to ask themselves those questions. Now, it's not, I'll give my answer, but ultimately, and that is the absolute objective truth. There is no question for me, Jesus Christ lived, died on the cross and was risen from the dead three days later to save us all from our sins. That is my truth. But I want every child to reach their own truth, whatever it is. I think we need to have explored that truth. I think we need them to ask themselves those questions. And if we don't I think we fail in the biggest and most complex part of developing because we fail to ask them to challenge themselves around those questions. COVID couldn't make that clearer. COVID with face is something that there's no question in my mind, there's somebody flying the plane. And so for me, a lot of the doubt and worry that has, I think, filled the nation and the world in the last 12 months just isn't there because i have an absolute confidence and trust that god will bring everything out for the good and the volcano metaphor is a part of that we've got this incredible fertile soil what are we going to
0: do with it as ever fantastic to speak to you thanks ever so much for finding the time today you can connect with me on twitter instagram and via linkedin remember keep inspiring schools we need more future school thinking now